Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's Q&A. It's Thursday mid-morning, so hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in. But let's jump in and see what we got. First up, Robert Smith wanted to comment about uh, my question last week of how you all would feel if I reviewed other stuff too. Um, And they said, review all things. Even if it's the long equipment you went with, I'm sure you have a unique perspective of pros and cons. So I think I do, but here's why. It's not because I think I'm special or anything. It's that since I really started digging into product development and tech, so 15 years now, um, I, I look at everything in a way of, well, how good is this? Is there something better? Did I pay the right price for it? So it doesn't really matter if it's a retro gaming scaler or a lawnmower or a toaster or what else. Whenever I I research something, I get a bit obsessive, which is annoying. Uh, It's usually past a price point. So if it's like 20 bucks or cheaper, I'll just, you know, I'd rather not waste my time. I'll buy a crappy toaster. And if it stinks, I'll give it away and buy another one. But for something that I actually spend a decent amount of money on, I dig in deep and then I go over the pros and cons and then I try to test it and I try to see what points of failure it has. And this is all just for me. This is just a selfish, I want to know that I'm buying the right thing. Um, And that's exactly what you see in every review that I do for retro gaming stuff. So I do feel like I have a unique perspective because my entire brain has been rewired to look at everything as a pros and cons review type of scenario. So I do want to do it. I just I need to do it in a way that accomplishes two things. First and foremost, I don't want to alienate an audience. I don't want people to say, hey, we're here because we appreciate the work you do for retro gaming. You know, if you're reviewing a pair of tweezers, how is that going to take away from what we really want you to do? And there's certainly mixed opinions out there about that, but I just have nothing but love and um, and appreciation for, for... everybody that supports. So I just, I don't want to alienate a group of people because I get into unibrow tweezer reviews or something like that. But on the flip side of it, it's also murder for algorithms, which is, it's kind of stupid because if you tell your average and mildly intelligent person like, hey, um, you know, this channel focuses on a few things, but there's really a whole bunch of stuff. So just subscribe. And if you don't, or if you're not interested in one of the things that pops up, don't watch it. That is a very reasonable thing that any normal human would completely agree with. But when you start factoring in algorithms and, you know, and all this other stuff, then it it is really detrimental. So I don't know. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I'll partner up with people who I, I could get to know and do reviews on other people's channels. And and that way the content fits with the right type of, of YouTube channel or blog or whatever else. And just be a guest and hopefully cross promote so I could bring more people into retro gaming while I'm unibrow tweezer reviewing or something. I don't know, but I don't want to talk too long about this because I don't want to waste everybody's time, but I did want to spend at least a few minutes both to respond to Robert, but also just to be completely transparent with where my head's at and listen to your feedback. Because I know there's definitely bias here, but if you're a supporter who's trying to help keep this stuff going, I really want to hear your opinion versus, you know, some troll in the comments just saying, you know, 
stop it, you know, no one cares, do something else. Like, those people don't matter, which is a rude but honest thing to say. Some angry troll has absolutely zero bearing on anything I do. But you all have a very important input to the things that I do. So hopefully that came out okay. I'll stop now so I could I could confidently say I wasn't rambling too bad. But I'm all ears for anybody's opinion on this. Noah Matson has an interesting issue that I think I know the solution for. But it is only a solution in this exact setup. I know I ramble a lot, and this is one of those times that I do not mind that I'm repeating myself and rambling because I need to make it clear to anybody who might be jogging or commuting or whatever else, this solution is only for this setup. But here's the issue. Noah is running everything uh, through an Extron Crosspoint into an Extron 160XI, which is an RGB interface, that's what Extron called them, that essentially is a sync converter and an image centering device. It doesn't really change RGB at all, but it does change sync and where the image is positioned, and it has a few other things that it could do. And in this setup, all of Noah's consoles work fine, except their Sega Genesis. And I had an incredibly similar setup back in Stanford. It was actually in a 10 VGA switch through an Extron RXI box. And I had the same issue. And I think the the solution was to send it higher voltage sync from the Genesis. Now, once again, this is not a solution you should ever do with SCART equipment anywhere in the chain. But everything that Noah mentioned, from the cross point to the RGB interface to the target monitor that only accepts RGBHV, which means even though it's a 15 kilohertz monitor, it's not a SCART monitor. It's not something that requires 75 ohm C-Sync. So there's two ways to send a higher voltage sync. You could either build or buy a sync stripper circuit and then just don't include the 470 ohm resistor on the output. If you already have one, if you like making breadboards or whatever else, that's a pretty easy solution. You would just have to find a way to wire it into your setup. And the other thing you could do is buy one of those absolutely cheap garbage um, AliExpress SCART cables and wire that one up. Console 5 sells them too. Console 5 sells them advertised as the cheap cable. They don't try to fool anybody into buying them, but they stock them for this exact reason. You need to make a custom cable for testing. Maybe you don't need fully shielded because you're only sending video and C-Sync, whatever. Point is, Console 5 has them if you're in the U.S. If you're out of the U.S., AliExpress might be faster um, depending on a million things. So the other thing you could do is just get one of those cables and remove the resistor on the sync line and wire it with a VGA style head because in Noah's setup, they have everything uh, with custom D sub style on the outside to make it easier to convert to the cross point. So you could just buy one of those SCART cables, pop the SCART head off, snip all the wires, and then wire it into a VGA head or if you don't want to jam everything into a small VGA head you can get one of those VGA breakout boards where it's a VGA connector on one end and a bunch of screw down terminals so then you could put in the you know the resistors and the caps that way and then uh for the RGB lines and then for the sync line you just put a cap or or even nothing just to test just direct sync would be fine to test so i would give both of those a shot but again this advice is only for noah only in this situation if you have a problem with your Genesis going through a SCART setup, do not do this. It would be a very stupid move to do this, but in Noah's setup, it's perfectly fine and totally safe. It might even be the solution. So let me know how you uh, how you made out with this, Noah. Good luck, and uh, you know, thanks on your uh, your first post and for your.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Support. Tyler Fox wants to put an optical drive emulator in their Dreamcast, but they've never used anything like that before. They know the two main options are the GDMU and the mode. Budget isn't a huge concern as much as quality, so they're skeptical of how cheaply they can get a GDMU off of Amazon. Should they go with a mode for the sake of quality, or would a generic GDMU be just fine? Well, I do have my opinion as to which you should go for in that scenario, but it actually isn't clone-related. The mode works by you basically dump your ISOs or your CDI images, check the documentation, I forgot which was which, but you basically dump your games on whatever medium of your choices, SSD, USB, micro SD, whatever. And that's it. And you know, you load up your firmware, not all games work, you got to make sure you have the right versions. But for the most part, it's about as easy as it gets. Whereas the GDMU, you have to run it through an app on your computer. If you don't run Windows, that's a problem. Um, you have to you have to set it up in a way where it either scans the SD card every time you power on, or you have to edit a file every time you add a new game to it. It's just at the time of its release, it was revolutionary, but now it's just clunky. And you know, I'm not shooting insults. It's just it is what it is. Technology evolves, right? I mean. it's every kind of technology you could describe that as the evolution moves forward. So I, if budget was not an option, I would choose the mode for ease of use. You just, you plug it in, you plug in your drive, you load your games and that's it. And there's potential for maybe, maybe I haven't gotten around to it yet, but getting a a configuration working so you could stream games from retro NAS to the mode using a Pi zero. The main reason I haven't gotten around to, doing some hardcore testing is because I think I paid like 150 bucks for my Pi Zero because you just can't get them anywhere. But I'll swing back around to that. I will uh, beg the uh, the retro NAS gods to help me out with that as well. But, you know, there's a lot of potential with mode, whereas with the GDM, you, you kind of know what you're getting. The other problem is that you're definitely getting a clone no matter where you're getting it from. And I've seen some very good quality hardware manufacturers make those, and I've seen some junky ones too, just like with all clones. But it's something you kind of have to decide. And just to address this, because I know there's people that sit in CGD and wait for me to say GDMU just so they could pounce. The reason that you don't hear people get as enraged about the GDMU being cloned, the real reason, all, all emotion aside, is that I don't think anybody knows who cloned it. So when you have these other products out that are cloned by, you know, the the big two notorious cloners with a couple other people gaining their notoriety as being giant piece of shit cloners, you know who cloned it. They're so blatant about it. They don't care. They rub it in everybody's face. And on top of that, the originals are still there to purchase. So it's very easy to get upset at that. And it's very easy to to point fingers, and it's not so easy to eat the shit that comes with that, but I'm, I'm willing to do it. But on the flip side of things, what am I going to do? Throw a temper tantrum about a GDMU when no one knows who cloned it. No one knows what the blame is. No one knows where it really originated from, and there's 50 different stores across AliExpress, Amazon, and eBay that sell them. 
So, and I would be willing to bet that many, if not most of those stores have no idea it's a clone. They're just people taking an inventory of stuff and selling it. And they just, they have no clue. So it's very easy to to say, oh, well, you know, Bob's a hypocrite because he, he encourages GDMU, but not the, you know, the RetroTink clone. And it's like, there's there's no way to really point fingers and you can't get the originals. And that's, you know, that is where emotion comes in. Should it be okay if a creator throws their middle finger up in the air at the people that want to buy it to buy the clone? That's a discussion for another time. And that's opinion. And everyone's going to have their own opinion and be entitled to their own opinion. But the fact is that when you talk about GDMU clones, we don't know who to blame. And there is no alternative. So I would suggest the mode but not because of cloning. If you had said, I'm on a huge budget, but I my uh, GD-ROM drive died and I really want to play Dreamcast, I would have said grab a mode in the cheapest SD card you could find. And even if it's super small, just load one or two games at a time and hold you off. I think I just said mode. I would have said get the cheaper GDMU <laughs> and throw it. Sorry, it's uh, all of these acronyms and stuff like that kind of um, kind of mess with my head. But if budget's not a concern, I would get the... Terra Onion mode because of ease of use and because you know that you're buying an original product. If you're on a huge budget, I would just grab the Amazon GDMU because if it doesn't work, you could send it back to Amazon and there is no alternative and we don't know who to blame. So uh, always interested in people's opinions on this one as long as they're level-headed. And please remember that even if an issue is triggering for you, I don't I will always listen to your opinion, but I'm not going to immediately flip and agree with you. Uh, we all have our own sources of information and knowledge, and most of the people that come around getting upset about the GDMU thing don't know everything that happened. I don't even know everything that happened, but I was there from the beginning, followed it, talking to Dunin, so I know a lot more than a lot of the people who throw criticisms about that. So I wanted to to kind of go over that. I probably talked too long about it, but I also wanted to make sure that people didn't jump in the comments and be like, damn you, Tyler, for talking about a clone. Like, that's not what you asked at all. So I wanted to, unfortunately, you can't just answer questions sometimes these days. You got to lay it all out, but hopefully that was okay. Firebrand X has an excellent question that's going to go down into a rabbit hole. So I'm going to keep this one short, just in interest of everybody's time. What would I recommend for a microphone for doing YouTube videos? Which one do I use? They're not particularly happy with mine. What microphone would I use that I suggest for doing YouTube videos? The first answer is always whatever you have. If you're ever hesitant to do a video and your reasons for being hesitant are your equipment isn't good enough, 99% of the time I say, forget all that, just do the video. Now, obviously, if you're doing a video about vocal tones or if you're reviewing audio interfaces or something, then of course the microphone would matter. But if you're talking about doing voiceovers when you're doing you know, educational work about aspect ratios and stuff like that and colors like Firebrand X has been doing, you know, whatever you have is fine. But just like Firebrand X said, if you're not happy with one you're currently using, I would I would always go by budget first, and then I would kind of figure out what it is in your room that you're looking to accomplish. So when I was in the city, my only goal was to be able to talk without you hearing all of the screams, sirens, explosions, and murders going on around me. So that's why I had that other mic, which was the Rode Procaster, I think. That's the one that was, you know, right in front of my face, but it worked 
really well. And in fact, when I went into B&H to demo them, I demoed a whole bunch of mics like that, ranging from 200 to 1500. And that one picked up the least amount of background noise in the middle of B&H, you know, with everybody running around, like imagine a big warehousey store with a lot of people in it. So that's why I chose that one. It wasn't the best sounding, but it was the best sounding with the least background noise. And then when I moved to the Burbs, I would be willing to sacrifice a little bit of quality to not have a giant microphone in my face. So I'm now using the Deity S-Mic, I think it's the S-Mic 2, which is a shotgun mic that's just off camera, like it's right there. Um, and I'm very happy with how it sounds. It is a little quieter, so I have to post-process everything. Like with the other mic, if I was in a super big rush or if I was having issues, I could just process the audio and level it. Whereas with this one, I have to process the audio. But it accomplishes the goal of not having something in my face. But it's expensive. So let budget decide. You could try a shotgun mic. I just sold a Rode... I forgot. It was a very cheap road shotgun mic. It's the kind that could mount to the top of your camera or to an arm. So if you want it off camera, get one of those. If you want it on camera, I would try looking for something like the Procaster. And that requires an audio interface. So if you already have something like a Motu box or a Focusrite box and that, then great, that's a good one. If not, if you don't have anything, if you're just like, I'm tired of using my webcam's microphone, I want to make YouTube videos, but I don't have anything else. What do I do? I actually really like the um, Blue Yeti, not the little one, the, the normal sized Blue Yeti. The little one sounded the same as my webcam mic when I tried that years ago. So that's like $110 and it's everything that you need. And it's right there. Uh, and it's not the best. People always criticize it, but the people who criticize it don't often do so in the context of 110 bucks. So yeah, to circle back. The short, short version. If anybody out there is hesitating on making a YouTube video, use your phone. It doesn't matter. Somebody like Firebrand X that's already made videos and just wants to upgrade their quality, look into whatever your equipment is and look into your goals. Either if you don't have anything else, the uh, Blue Yeti is totally fine. There's a couple of ones. Check out Epos Fox's channel. There's a few like Blue Yeti competitors that are around the same price that have been very good. So Epos has been pointing you in the right direction. Podcastage has done a few, but I, I remember specifically Epos doing some. And then if you already have an audio interface or if you're looking to buy it for multiple reasons. So if you record music and you do MD Fourier analysis and you want a good audio interface to listen, the Motu M4 has been my favorite. Then you could grab another mic like the Rode Procaster, I think. I'll, I'll find a link to it and I'll put it in there. I'll, I'll link to all the stuff that I said. So hopefully I didn't ramble on too long. I could do a I could easily do two hours on microphones. So uh, that's as short as I can get, but hopefully it was at least good enough perspective for anybody who was wondering the same thing. Hector Delgado recently purchased a Game Boy Advance game, Pokemon Emerald, that didn't work due to excessive corrosion in the PCB. Ouch. However, the chips looked like they could still work, so they felt they could give it a shot and repair the board, but that would take a lot of meticulous work, removing every component from the board and removing a lot of solder mask to repair broken traces and so on. While thinking about this idea of transplanting the components to a donor board, they considered an original board, but since the game in question is Pokemon Emerald, they don't have many cheap donor board options to choose from. In the end, they found a GitHub repo that contains Gerber files with replicas of a lot of Nintendo cartridge PCBs, including the one that they need, but that's where the question comes in. 
what would I recommend? Is it a better idea to keep using the original board, even if that means tearing off all the solder mask and potentially repairing almost every trace? Or is a replica board a good idea? If the replica board is the better option, what considerations do I need to keep in mind when printing through a service like JLCPCB? So, uh, Jose deals with this all the time. And I, he usually repairs the traces also because he's a freaking detective too. He likes finding these things out. So it all depends on how much damage, where the damage is, and what it would take. So if you literally had to remove every component and then sand down the solder mask and redo every trace, that's not worth it. But very often, even with corrosion, you could scrape off a lot of that corrosion. You could clean it up. And then you find at the end that you have three or four traces that need to be repaired. And if that's the case, I would probably go that route just because there's a lot that could go wrong. Now, if there is a ton of damage or if you just want to try this out, where did the Gerber files come from is my question. And I'm not saying this as an insult. I'm not, I'm not shaming anybody or anything like that. But the truth is that some people know what they're doing and some people try their best and have no idea that they don't know what they're doing. So it's not their fault. But I've seen a lot of PCB designs over the years where even me, who is not a board designer, looks right at it and goes, that's terrible. Wow. So if the if these files, which I, um, you know, if you wouldn't mind posting a link, I could certainly add more info on that. But if these files are good, yeah, have them made. Um, I showed the ad in last week's uh, weekly roundup on how to order it. If you want to hold off and wait to make sure that I did it correctly, so they should arrive in like a week or so, I'll tell everybody, uh, I mean, I'll tell everybody right on camera if I screwed it up. I think that would even be a helpful learning experience if I did. But if you want to hold off on that to make sure I got the bevel and the chamfer and the gold edges correct, then have them made and give it a try. And the other thing that you could do too is if whatever generic components are on there, resistors, capacitors, whatever else, you could only take off the chips on the PCB that are proprietary and then just put new components on these PCBs. And in fact, uh, I don't know if if they're similar components or not, whatever it might be. But if you know, like, let's say you're going to make five of these because the minimum for any PCB order is like three or five, you could do something like, okay, I know I took off each individual component on the original game, and I know that it's this resistor, this capacitor. You could have a PCB assembly made for just a few bucks more, where it, the board would show up with every component except the ROM chip already on it. So then you would only have to transplant one. And if that's the case... If you're able to pull all of that off, that might really be the easiest, especially if you have the ability to remove the ROM chips. So those are all things you would, if Pokemon's got the battery in it, so you'd probably have to manually solder the battery holder on there, but that's fine. Voltar's got videos on that. A bunch of people do as well, but I think that would be a good idea, but that is all reliant on the fact that the PC, the Gerber files for the PCB are correct, that you do have the correct components spec'd out and that you're able to transplant the chip properly. And even if you did that, then there's also, actually either either way that you go about doing this, if you go to sell that game, there is that moral question of what do you disclose? And for me personally, I would just be always honest about everything. Hey, here's my original Pokemon game, I'm selling it, but I repaired the traces. Or this is not a repro, this is not a clone, it's the original chip, but I had to use a repro board because the original was dead. 
that's definitely something that I would always disclose. That's got to be up to you, of course. But I just kind of wanted to put all of that into perspective because that's a great question. And there's going to be a time where more corroded PCBs are going to be more commonplace with perfectly good working chips. So all of those things are going to need to be addressed at some point. Like what's the best solution, where to get the PCBs from, can you get it where you just drop the ROM in and plug a battery in, and also how do you handle selling those? Um, and those questions are all bigger than just me, but they were worth talking about, and hopefully I got you rooted on where to start your repair. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oliver Clare wanted to follow up on the conversation last week of how to present power supply data on the wiki, and Oliver had an example to show to see if that's kind of where my head was at, and Oliver showed measuring with a pair of calipers, a Magnafox Odyssey cable, and the power supply pin on the end of it. And this is exactly what I was thinking of, and this is a great example too, because things like the length of the connector may or may not be relevant. So um, the length and the width of the plastic as well, because one of the replacement power supplies won't fit into a Sega Master System because the hole isn't big enough on the Master System. So you would then have to get a pigtail adapter or sand down some of the rubber around the outside of the power connector, which is fairly safe as long as you don't go too deep anyway. But with this information, you would absolutely be able to know that. So um, that is that is all great info. The uh, I think you have everything, including the pin size in the middle. So the only thing that I'm not quite seeing here is on the inside of these power supply connectors, you know, you have center positive and center negative, but the inside hole, that's the other thing that you need to, uh, to measure as well, because if it's, if the hole is too narrow, it won't fit. And if it's too wide, it won't make solid connections. So if you wiggle the wire, the power will blip. Um, that might actually be here though. It just might be in a slightly different section, but basically I think you nailed it. Um, and thank you very much for taking the time to do this because hopefully it'll trickle down and people will, will do exactly what you did for everything at some point. And, you know, just to make myself clear, I'm not expecting everybody to drop what they're doing and do this today, but having a resource like consolemods.org means that the next time that you go to replace your power supply, you might say, hey, I have a set of calipers and my old power supply is dead, so let me take some pictures and measure it up, throw it on the wiki, and that way other people could benefit. It's not, I'm not looking for this mass influx of data. I just think anytime somebody stumbles across this, just taking the moment to take the research that you just already did and put it in a file, I think is going to be what really helps everybody. So thanks for, thanks for rooting that. And, you know, hopefully we could see it take off. One more question from Oliver. They have a pretty complicated setup that has a mix of consoles running RF, composite, component, VGA, RGB SCART, composite over SCART, and HDMI that are split to both a 4K flat panel TV and a consumer grade Panasonic CRT. They have a bunch of G-switches in the mix as well. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of complicated to wire something like this, but it's mostly pulled off. They do have a few questions, though. First, to get around the RetroTINK 5X component composite input problem, as, you know, you can only use 
the component inputs or composite input at the same time. You can't have everything plugged in. Um, all of the different analog signals are ultimately output to a SCART port, whether on the 5X or the CRT. Is there any downside to using SCART instead of the ports each signal was designed for? So yeah, you can't feed component video through the SCART port on the RetroTINK 5X. Uh, you could convert it if that's really the setup that you wanted, but what you would, what you might want to consider in that setup, or maybe this is what you're doing, it's just worded a little differently, is run all component video directly into the RCA ports. You could have S-Video plugged in at the same time as well with no harm. Uh, and you could even use Y cables to combine the audio on your component and S-Video devices if you wanted that. Um, there could be some audio interference issues. You're going to have to listen for yourself to see, but there's not a safety issue. It's just best that you don't power on multiple things at the same time. That might be an issue, but as long as you're careful about that, that would be okay. But using composite and RGB all through SCART would work perfectly in that setup. All you would have to do is just change the input on your RetroTINK 5X. Next, they're getting some SCART cables from RetroAccess to Daisy Chain, the G-SCART switch, uh, both G-SCART switches together. Are there any special considerations as to what spec of SCART cable is needed to run all the different signals through smoothly? No, if you buy a just a standard plug-to-plug -plug SCART cable from RetroAccess, they're all shielded. Uh, all the important ones are shielded and they're all wired. Um, and that's pretty much it. You wouldn't really have to worry about anything else. Retro access and, and retro gaming cables don't sell unshielded SCART to SCARTs. Or if they ever did, they would be big block letters like, you know, we got extra crap here, we'll sell it to you cheap type of thing. Like, you'll know if it's any different. It, basically, if you don't see any kind of disclaimer, it's a fully shielded, fully wilded, fully wilded, fully wired SCART to SCART cable. Next, can the GCOM switches be daisy-chained together with both composite and component running in parallel like in the drawing? Uh, yeah, I think it's fine. Um, I don't I don't really think there would be any issue to that at all. Uh, I just know that there, are, there it has to detect something in order to switch. So I don't think you would be able to use that in an audio-only scenario. But yeah, for um, for this, it should be perfect. And last, downscaling HDMI in that setup gets messy because, of course, you then have to downscale HDMI to component, get that into the retro Tink 5X, and then take the Tink 5X's HDMI out, put a switch in, have one go. I mean, it is it is definitely complicated. And the latest retro Tink 5X firmware doesn't support downscaling. Mike's still trying to figure that out. You could always go back to the older firmware. But Oliver was thinking of making a dedicated downscaler, like something like the GBS Control. And if you have the ability, and I know you do, Oliver, but to anybody listening, if you have the ability to solder together one of those, yeah, I think it's a great solution. I think it's cheap. I think it works really well. And I, I just, I, I think something like that is perfect for a setup like this. I love GBS Control. It's not the best scaler in the world, but for what it does and the price that you could do it with, it's amazing. I don't think anybody would, would disagree. So yeah, I, I think if it makes your workflow easier and you don't have any 720p that you're going to send to it, because the RetroTINK can downscale 720p, uh, whereas I don't think the GBS Control can. But if you're only talking about 480p or 480i, yeah, GBS Control is awesome. If it makes your workflow easier, definitely go for it. So I think I got your questions right. I think I may have got the first one wrong, but my answer was still right. So hopefully that helps people out. Nick said that they appreciated that I addressed the question from last week about the PCBs with beveled edges in the roundup this week. Um, 
I'll be honest. A lot of times I get these suggestions and I put them in the back of my head and I try to get at it right away because if enough time goes by, I just forget. So this week or last week, I actually was planning on doing something totally different, ran out of time and thought, well, what would be a good ad this week? You know, I try not to rerun them unless I'm out of time or unless I think they're a good fit based on something else. And I went, oh, I had Nick's question. So then that's when I figured, let me get the uh, PCB. I talked to Renee from DB Electronics and said, what PCB to use? And he said, use Steez from HD Retrovision. So it all completely fell into place. Uh, and I, it was a great suggestion. So I'm glad I was able to do it. I don't know if I ordered it right. We'll find out when it gets here. But that's kind of the great thing about doing this stuff in real time is I get to make the same mistakes that anybody else might make, which it's funny because the trolls are always like, look at this moron, can't even order a PCB, but I guarantee they could neither if it was their first time ever doing it. So I like doing that. I like failing live to show people what you might go through, regardless of what developer or troll wants to come at me for it. But um, I just, I wanted to address your, your comment here today because there's a lot of really awesome suggestions I get from people that I never do either because they're incredibly complicated to pull off, or I think they're awesome and they're easy and enough time goes by and I forgot about it. So if you're one of those people whose suggestions I completely blew off, it was not intentional, most likely not intentional. Uh, and I, I wish I could get to everything. It's just, this one happened to fall into place perfectly. And whether I got the PCB right or wrong, I still think it's a pretty good learning experience and something that I'm happy to show people. So keep the suggestions coming. I will try my best to get to them. Uh, can't always, but thank you. I, I do appreciate that. That made for a pretty fun ad. Couple of questions from Adam, Adam Ant. First, they just obtained an Xbox 360 Elite. They plan to mod the hell out of it. What mods do I recommend? They'd like to be able to play games from a flash drive as to not have to use the CD drive. So I know so little about 360 modding. It was one of those time periods where I used the 360 for other things when it came out, and then I got busy with other stuff, and I kind of just skipped over it. So what I would suggest, um, and this is just my personal suggestion, by the way, so you know, do, do whatever you would like, but I would suggest looking into what RetroNAS supports for the 360 and try to mod it to support that, unless you have zero desire to, to work with RetroNAS at all. But I just find this to be such a helpful tool that I'm loving. So for me personally, I would just go, okay, what what ways could I run games from RetroNAS on the 360? And I would soft mod it to do that. Just my opinion. Next, how do they prevent the red ring of death? All they know is they need to keep the 360 cool. Uh, basically, I mean, anytime you get a new console, I would always carefully take it apart. And when I say take it apart, for things like the 360, take the hard drive out, pop the front bezel out, and then hit that with compressed air. At the very least, get in all of the vents. And if you're somebody comfortable with taking stuff apart, take it apart to wherever you're comfortable and clean it out. And that would be the number one thing that I would suggest. And look for any glaring issues. But other than that, um, you know, I, I kind of would just take care of it and, and, you know, keep an eye on it and see what happens. And lastly, they've seen a lot of people resolder things to get rid of the red ring of death, but they'll use leaded solder because it's easier to use. For console modding in general, is there a danger of using leaded solder since it has a lower melting point? I mean, there's the health reasons for it, but I think a lot of that is myth. 
Um, so now, basically, I'm about to be talking out of my ass here because I'm going from memory and I'm going from hearsay. But I think a lot of the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 related things that say you have to use leaded solder are not really true. And especially in the case of the PS3, where that turned out to be those strange capacitors, I forgot which name they were called, but those turned out to be the issue. It wasn't even the reballing needed in most cases. Obviously, there's still situations where that would be needed, and maybe lead would apply to that. But I heard a lot of people saying that that was the cause, and it wasn't at all. So it could be true, or it could be bullshit, but I think when that day comes that you get the red ring of death, go to all of the usual good sources, reference console mods wiki, and see what people are are doing today. Because that's one of those things that before the capacitor issue on the PS3, it was known knowledge, which was obviously not true, that you know you could use a heat gun and change it to leaded solder and that'll fix all the problems. When once people realized what it was, then everybody realized, oh no, we, we were wrong in some of those cases. So... I would basically just keep it in decent condition, and whenever the time comes that you do get it, check whatever people are doing that day. Don't go by old info, and don't even go by what I'm saying now. The only advice that you should take from this, the only solid advice, is double-check where you're getting your info from, because I'm, I'm most likely not correct about this, but at least uh, at least sharing it in this way could probably help whenever you do come across that issue. But yeah, I mean, I would just clean the heck out of it, mod it to do whatever it is that you're looking to do and enjoy it. There's a lot of great games on the 360. Jerry said, now that the PlayStation core is out in the mister, they were wondering if there are any compromises in using one RAM stick with the analog IO board versus two RAM sticks with the digital IO board. So right now, today, the day that I'm recording this from the perspective of a gamer who wants a low lag, well-performing solution there's really no difference today. If you're a programmer, if you're doing audio analysis, there might be, but at the moment, if you're just a gamer that wants to enjoy your existing setup, zero problems with it. I would just use it and enjoy it. And in fact, even with all the extra stuff coming out, unless a core absolutely requires dual RAM or unless there is a widely advertised feature that requires it, then I would just continue using your existing setup and not worry about it at all. If you have an HDMI-only setup, or if you're about to get into Mr. and you don't know what route to go, it's going to be complicated for a little while longer. There's new things coming out. There's new things being tweaked. There's nothing coming out that's going to make you want to throw out your analog I.O. board. So, you know, unless you require dual RAM. So don't worry about that. You know, there's nothing, there's no super duper Turbo X model I.O. board about to be released. But there are more options that might fit your needs best. So if you don't already have an analog I.O. board and you want either VGA or RGBS, I would say maybe grab any of those DACs and use direct video and go from there, and you don't really have to worry about anything. And you could make your decision later on what solution you want, and the DACs could always be used for a bunch of other things anyway, so I think that's a really good safe way to go about doing it. If you need component video, if you need S-video, or you need composite video especially, then things are going to get... I would just kind of hold off for at least a few more weeks, because there's a so much going on and there's so much evolving and there's so many different things that people are trying to try and improve this process. So unless you're a full-on nerd that doesn't mind, or doesn't mind being a beta tester, I would wait a little bit longer for that. 
S-Video is pretty stable now, <clears throat> whether you're using Mike's cores or one of the conversions. It's not bad at all. Composite is still a mixed bag, and it might always be depending. So there's a lot going on in the analog video side of Mr. Stuff, but I just want to reiterate, if you take nothing else away from this, PlayStation Core with I.O. board and a single stick of RAM is totally awesome. And if you already own a full setup with an analog I.O. board, it is awesome and will continue to be awesome regardless of what else is coming out. You don't have to worry. There's no there's no crazy thing that's going to make yours instantly obsolete other than if there's a core release that requires two RAM sticks. But it's not, you know, there's it's not like you're going to get anything much different for every other core. So hopefully I worded that right. Before I go, I just want to clarify something. When I talk about potentially making other content, I'm not asking all of you to watch it. I just want to do it, and if you happen to like it, cool. And if you have no interest in it, don't ever click on it. But I'm bringing this up just because when I discussed it first because of Robert's question, I didn't realize that a few other people had some comments in there that were all positive. Thank you for your feedback. Uh, but a lot of the consensus was basically just, Maybe it's weird if you did a unibrow plucker review on a retro RGB channel, but they'll watch it if they're interested and they won't if they're not. And that's all I ask. If I ever do any other content, mixing up on this channel, doing other, ch whatever it is that I do, I just want to make the point that I, I want to hear your feedback and I want to hear your thoughts on it, but I don't expect anybody to watch any of this unless you're actually interested in it. I do actually think of, now that I've said it as a joke, it would be hilarious to review a unibrow trimmer. But anyway, that's just the point I wanted to make is that I'm not trying to say that I'm going to do more things and you should all come with me. It's just, it's the same way I'm at, at the bar or at a party or at a concert. Hey, I'm going to do this. Anybody feel like coming with me? You're all invited. That's, that's basically how I wanted to word that. And things fall out of my mouth the wrong way all the time. So I just wanted to clarify that. But anyway, if you're new to these Q and A's, ask any question you have anywhere, anywhere that you support in the latest Q and A post. The way these services work, I can't figure out what's a new question on an older post. And as you saw today, I really just like scrolling through in real time and answering the questions like that. Um, anywhere it is you support, the newest Q&A post, and if I miss your question, it's always a mistake, or maybe you asked the question as this video was rendering before it was released. So either DM me directly or just follow up uh, with the next week's stuff. But either way, thanks to everybody that participates, and especially thank you to anybody who supports in any way possible, because it's you that's making all of this stuff happen, especially the behind-the-scenes stuff, which I wish I could highlight more, but I don't want to out anybody's cool projects. I just want you all to know that you're making the difference in those. And e even the little things that I could help with, it's really just because you allow me to. So thank you all very much.